turn to the second chapter of Philippians as uh, our, the book we are using in guiding us in this sermon series. And if you get a chance, I ask you to read Philippians. It's not a long book. It's not a long letter. When you get a moment outside of this morning, read through it. And it might do you well even before each Sunday to read this letter. It doesn't take that long to go through it. To give you a sense and a feel for what Paul is trying to do in speaking to them. And in chapter 2, he draws on what we talked about last week and he gives them advice. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy... Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under heaven and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. So far, O Lord, we've stuck with this series. We've been challenged by it, and it is discomforting at times. We come just the same because we trust you. May we trust you this morning that through my words in some way you are speaking to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So since we're in the middle of the series, I thought we might do a quick check-in and clarify why we're doing this. I clearly chose the word purple for a reason. One reason is obvious, and another maybe not so much. I'd say first and foremost I chose it as a theological word. Theologically, which is why we have the wrong color pyramids. It's not Advent or or Lent. Purple in theological language refers to preparation, formation, Reflection, which is what we do in those two seasons. We're being formed, we're we're preparing, we're reflecting. And so that's why, in one sense, I chose the color. 
The other one is obvious. The other one has to do with what's going on out in the world, red and blue. But I want to make sure that it's not misunderstood. Purple does not mean a blending of red and blue so that you cannot no longer distinguish between the two. That's not, that's not what we're trying to, to get at. Instead, we're recognizing that the church is made up of people from all over the, the spectrum. And yet, Christ calls us together in community. What are we supposed to do about that? In other words, I don't believe that a church is brought together in order to necessarily create some political agenda. I believe that the church is brought together by God in order to build relationships, to build a relationship with God, to build our relationships with one another. God seems adamant about that. As my friend and fellow pastor Blair Money once put it, often community happens when the person you want you don't want to deal with ever at all lives there all the time. I think that's true. The last person you want to deal with at all lives there all the time. So I hope that in this time together, you're being challenged to look at yourself and how you react to other people, how you treat other people, how you relate to other people. That's that's what we're doing. So let's turn to Paul again in the Philippians. We didn't we don't we're not quite sure of what the conflict was in the Philippian church, but we do know that there was some conflict. It wasn't as big a deal as like what was happening in the in the Corinthian church, in the in the church in Corinth. I mean that one made the front page of Dallas Morning News and Houston Chronicle and probably Time magazine and that was big stuff going. It wasn't that big, but but there was something. And there was enough distraction and conflict that make Paul write about it at some level in his letter to them. In his commentary on the, on the letter itself, Fred Craddock points out some of the things it might have been that was going on in the church. One of the things he says is it might have been centered on two of the, the main leaders that Paul had appointed in the church. He appointed two women and leaders in the church, and they didn't see eye to eye on everything. And so Paul mentions that in chapter 4 when he says, I've asked them to have the same mind. And maybe the conflict is related to that or completely focused on that. That may be it. He also says it might be because of all the preachers that came in after Paul that preached a different message, that pulled segments of the church, you know, in a different direction, away from what Paul had been teaching them, and were teaching them practices that weren't true to the faith and all of that, and that that may, Paul mentions that one in chapter 3, and it may be about that. It may be that, you know, just the relationship of the congregation to Paul himself. I mean, churches' relationships to their pastor is complex, and sometimes people feel all kinds of things, like they're not part of the inner circle, or maybe they just didn't agree with what Paul was doing from the very beginning, and some of them, they just had this thing going on. Maybe that was it. It could have been any one of those things. It could have been a mix of those things. What we know is that it was there. 
There was conflict. And whenever there is conflict, blame always seems to show up. You did this, and so it just ruined my blood. Well, I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't have done the thing that you did, and the whatever, and the Well, if you, and then you, and I, and then. Blame. Blame's an interesting thing. We love to do it. But have you ever really thought about what difference blame actually makes? I mean, what kind of difference does blaming actually make? I'm going to suggest that blaming, the only difference blaming makes most of all of the time, most of the time, is it removes you from any personal responsibility and puts the focus on someone else. That's really, most of the time, the only thing it really accomplishes. It puts the focus on someone else and removes you from any personal responsibility whatsoever. In his book, A Failure of Nerve, that we're, I'm using as part of this series, is kind of the guide... Rabbi Edwin Friedman talks about the reciprocal relationship between blame and personal responsibility. He talks about it this way. He says, families who tend to blame more and more also become less and less able to take responsibility for themselves. The more a family blames each other for its own problems, the less each member of the family is able to be responsible for themselves. It's a reciprocal relationship. You did this and so it just ruined my day. Well, you're too controlling. Well, you make me late every time we go anywhere. Well, I wouldn't make you late if you've been in. It just, it goes, no, nothing is learned from a conversation like that except for maybe not to enter the conversation in the first place. That may be the only thing that is learned. And what happens is, Families will devolve into a place where no one is listening to anyone at all. Societies function the same way. Same thing. A pattern of blaming perpetuates a pattern of blaming and less personal responsibility. The easiest target, I mean, it's an easy target, and we gripe about it all the time. Every time an election comes around, what do we gripe about? The ads. Political ads. What has been the lore for the longest time now? If you want to win, what do you do? You put as much blame as possible on, the, on your opponent. If you do that, you will win. If so-and-so gets elected, they're going to ruin everything. They're going to do this, and that'll just ruin everything. If so-and-so... Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm not going to do that. So you should vote for me. That's, that's the lore. Whether we like it or not. And the wildest crazy. It is crazy. And the craziest thing about it is, it works. We eat it up. If we didn't eat it up, it wouldn't continue. 
We eat it up. We jump into it like a fish to water. What would happen if instead of placing blame, we began practicing personal responsibility for our own condition, whatever that condition might be? What if instead of blaming opponents, we simply stated what we're about? And then when the news reporter comes and says, well, did you see what your opponent's doing? Yeah, that's too bad. I wish the best for him. I hope it goes well. But here's what we're about. Not let him derail. What would happen? Here's another example. A couple goes to parties, right? They, they go to parties. And quite often when they go to parties, this is one of Friedman's examples. Quite often when they go to parties, the husband gets drunk and embarrasses his wife, right? Happens. But it happens often. And it happened that particular night. And so the next day, what does the wife do? Blames the husband. Why did you embarrass me again last night? And we all, we could play this conversation right out. Why did you embarrass me last night? What are you talking about? Well, you did the same thing you just did. You got drunk, you embarrassed me. and what? It's a party. We're supposed to have fun. You're being ridiculous. And it just goes, no, I'm not. You just, yes, you are. And you do, you always do that. I don't always do it. You remember last July, I didn't do it at that party. I never, <laughs> you're right. That's, it's where it goes. It goes nowhere. No one is listening. You, you, you. What would happen if instead of blaming, she stood up and said, you know, we've talked about this before, and I've decided that you have every right to make a complete idiot of yourself. <laughs> You're a grown man after all. So next time, I'm going to take my own car so that I can leave. And I had to amend this from 9 o'clock because someone was really worried about him. And I'll get you an Uber. <laughs> someone came up and said, I'm really worried about him. I said, all right, we'll get him an Uber. What would change? Which method do you think has more potential of someone listening? May not listen. Which has more potential? Which actually changes things? Say the one where at least one of them took personal responsibility for their own condition. Stayed engaged. But this is the kind of thing Paul's getting at. This is what he's working at with the Philippians. It's not abundantly clear on the surface level. You have to think about it. But, but when we, find, we kind of realize that there's stuff going on in the, in the Philippian church, what does Paul do? He doesn't step out and start blaming. He instead finds their strengths, the potential he sees in them, and he lifts those up as encouragement. Be of the same mind, he says. Humble yourself. Put, don't... Put, your own, put the other's interests in front of yours. Let, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Because I know you can do it. He sees that potential in them. He's trying to 
help them maintain a certain posture with one another. To really understand that, we've got to look at each one of these. When Paul says, be of the same mind, he's not saying, have the exact same opinion. He's not saying, agree on everything. That's not what he's saying. That's why he says, let love, you know, that's why he says, have, have the same love right after. He's, he's, that's all put together. He's, he's, he's building an identity. He's saying, have the certain posture, a certain orientation around one another. When he says, look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others, he's not saying place someone else's opinion above yours. He's not even saying look to their opinions. He says look to their interests. And what's the one thing that everyone is interested in? What's the one thing we universally want we want to be heard we simply want to be heard and we hope that there is someone out there who cares enough to listen to what we have to say and when that actually happens it changes things. Paul is simply trying to reorient us so that we can listen to what someone else has to say. Let me ask you, when's the last time you sewed your mouth shut and tried hard to listen to what someone else has to say? without trying to figure out what's wrong with their argument. When's the last time? It's the last time you paid attention to someone in such a way that they know you're actually paying attention. That's what Paul's trying to get us to do. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, give them some room Give them the mic for a minute. Let them speak. See what, see what they're going to say. And as soon as you start to get that, you start to kind of read through this letter and you start to kind of feel this sense of what Paul is calling us to do, this posture, this orientation to one another, this mature place where we own our own condition, take responsibility for our own actions, but not disengage from someone else, keep their interest up there with ours. When you get that, you start to say to yourself, you know, I think I can do this. I think I can do it. I think I can do that, be of the same mind, have the same kind of orientation. I think I can work on that and look to their own, their, the interest of others rather than my own interest in that sense. I get that. I think I can work on that. I think I can blame a little less and, and maybe listen a little more. I think I can do it. I got it. I think I've got it. And that's when Paul drops the line to end all lines. He could have just stopped right there. I almost wish he had, but he takes it to the nth degree. He goes all the way. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, though he was in the form of God, humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on cross oh that's what you mean 
I don't know if I can do that. I'm not sure I can do that. From the bottom of his pocket, Paul pulls out the one event that we could never repeat. The one place where Jesus had every reason to begin blaming. The one place Jesus had every right, unequivocally every right to blame us for all the things we do. The one place and he didn't do it. He didn't blame. He hung up on a cross that we made for him and chose forgiveness instead. Rather than blame, he he chose to forgive. God was listening. As Fleming Rutledge implies in his book on the crucifixion, He says, the cross reveals to us what God has always known. And that is that our world doesn't need more blaming. Our world needs redeeming. When you find yourself in a situation where you're feeling the urge to blame, I say take a break and think about it for a minute. Resist that initial urge to do it. Rather than simply blame someone else and remove yourself from any personal responsibility, take personal responsibility and aspire to something greater. Think of the cross. Because our world doesn't need more blaming. It needs redeeming. As impossible as it may seem, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be a purple church.